One error about the second coming is people scoff about it. They deny that there will be a second coming. They say, you know, it's just everything just continued in a uniform way as it was from the beginning. Well, Peter said, they sure are in for a rude awakening. That's wrong. But then I think of others, and this is pertaining to the kind of thing Will was asking me about today, the doctrine of premillennialism. The premillennialist believes that when Jesus came to earth, he came to earth to establish his kingdom. But he was rejected by the Jews and crucified. So instead of being able to establish his kingdom, after the crucifixion, he ascended back into heaven, and as an interim, he established the church that will be from the time of his ascension back into heaven until he comes again. And then when he comes again, at that time, he's going to establish the kingdom on earth. And and prior to that, there's going to be a rapture where people are raptured up into heaven and the Lord returns. He sets up his kingdom on earth. He reigns for a thousand years. And then at the end of that time, there's going to be a resurrection and judgment of the wicked. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. That's not what the scriptures teach about the second coming. And then there are others, and many among our own brethren, that likewise twist the scriptures relative to the second coming. And that is, they say, there will be no second coming, not like the scoffer, it's different than the scoffer that I just mentioned, but from the standpoint that they'll say the second coming has already come. That in A.D. 70, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, that that filled all those passages that speak of resurrection, that speak of judgment, that speak of punishment, that all that was fulfilled in A.D. 70, and that's often called the A.D. 70 doctrine, and also it's referred to as realized eschatology. Well, it's it's like Peter said. People twist the scriptures, and it's not like no harm is done. They do it to their own destruction. But tonight, I want us to go to the Word of God and see what is said about this very important topic because what we're going to find is that just as God has spoken, that's the way it will be. It is impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6 and verse 18. What he has promised, he is faithful to perform, Hebrews 10 verse 23. And so let's talk about that day, that day that's coming, the the day that we sang about this evening, that great day that's coming. Think with me about what Jesus said in John chapter 6, beginning at verse 44. Jesus said, No man can come unto me except the Father that sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. As it is written, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone therefore who has heard and has learned cometh unto me. Jesus said in John 6, 44, referring to those that hear, they're taught, they hear, they learn, they come to him. He said, I will raise him up on the last day. There's a day in Scripture called the last day. We sometimes sing the song, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. That is literally true. When that trumpet sounds, time won't be anymore. Time is a phenomenon that exists because there was was creation. You start with the first day, second day, the, the creation week. And time is a continuum. It it, it continues until the Lord's coming. And then what you have is eternity. Just like before the creation, all you had looking back 
through in infinity was just eternity. And so we get used to the sun rising and the sun setting. I know I'm speaking accommodatively, but that's the way the scriptures speak as well. One day follows the other. But there will be a time that that will happen all right. It will be day on one side of the earth and night on the other side. But then that will be the last day. There won't be any more days after that. And Jesus said, I will raise him up on the last day. So one thing I learned is that on the day called the last day, the resurrection will occur. Second thing I learned is that on that day called the last day, the judgment will occur. In John 12 and verse 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not these sayings of mine has one that judges him, that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him on the last day. There's a day described in the book of Revelation when the books are opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. But on that last day, that last day, that's the day Jesus said he would raise the dead. That's the day when he said judgment will occur. Sometimes it's, the day is called the day of the Lord or the day of, of, of Jesus Christ. For example, in Philippians 1 and verse 6, Paul expressed his confidence that the one who has begun, and I love this passage, the one who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. Could I make a suggestion? Tonight our sermon is not on prayer. But I would suggest to you, if you are a child of God, and most everyone, if not all in the audience tonight are, but make that your own prayer. Do you know how to pray the scriptures? There's so many scriptures that lend themselves to being put in prayer form. And it's all right for us to say to our Father in heaven, you have begun a good work in us. Complete it until the day of our Lord. Complete it until the day of Christ. That's what God wants to do. He didn't call us through the gospel that we might experience wrath. He called us to save us. He began a good work in us. And so as we continue to allow him to work his purpose in us, he's completing what he started. You know, God likes to finish what he started, and he's completing what he started until when? Until the day of Christ. This judgment day is called the day of Christ. Now for some, it will be a day of wrath. In the second chapter of Romans, in the second chapter of Romans, beginning at verse 4, Paul asked the question, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and long-suffering and forbearance, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up for thyself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his works. You see, for some... It will be a day of wrath. For others, it will be a day of redemption. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter at verse 30, Paul there said, 
and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed unto the day of your redemption. And that's where we want to be. That, but it's, it's all talking about the same day. The last day. When the resurrection occurs. When judgment occurs. The day of Christ. It'll be a day of wrath for some. A day of redemption for others. The expression in 2 Peter 2 and verse 9 is, is called there the day of judgment. But Jude in his one chapter book referring to the same day refers to it as the judgment of the great day. I wonder if that's where the title of the song or, and the wording of the first verse of that song that Will led us in a while ago came from. It's referred to in Jude, that the verse is Jude verse 6, as the judgment of the great day. Indeed, as we just sang, there's a great day coming. There's a great day coming. There's a great day coming by and by when the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left. Are you ready for that day to come? So that's the day we're talking about tonight. That's the day of the, of the second coming of our Lord. We know we came the first time. And all of the Old Testament was written in anticipation of his coming, really from Genesis through Malachi. And we have that special lineage that is preserved and is, is noted through, throughout the Old Testament scriptures and then revisited at the opening of the Gospel of Matthew as well as Luke chapter 3. And so we know that Jesus came. That's why we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It tells us Jesus came. Galatians 4 and verse 4 says, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son. Romans 5 and verse 6 refers to his coming in due season or due time. And so he came. Now that's his first coming. The first coming had a very important purpose for him to fulfill all scripture. He came to do the Father's will. He kept the law perfectly. And most importantly, he died for our sins according to the scripture. And he was buried. And he arose on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then, after that interval of spending 40 days with the apostles after his resurrection, Acts 1 and verse 3 says, as we continue in Acts 1, this is when, having this last conversation recorded with them, this is when he ascended into heaven. And verse 9 says, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. If you don't mind, on a personal note, there's something I think of when I look at this passage that I wanted to share with you. I mentioned a while ago, I mentioned a while ago that Linda and I have four granddaughters. We also have four grandsons. And in addition to that, we also have a grandson that is deceased. Uh, this summer will be five years that he died of complications of severe cerebral palsy. He was only three years old. And I, I, we lost track of how many operations he had. And he had already an older brother and a sister. And they were trying to come to terms with what it mean, would mean for their little brother to die. 
And there was a, a, a I think I've got this right, I think the, the person I have in mind was associated with hospice care, yeah, but I think that's right, and if not, an, an agency like that. But anyway, she was really understanding about kids and, and what's taking place there, and she brought over two helium balloons, and she gave each of the little children, Leon and Renoa, brother and sister, she gave them a, the, the string, you know, that holds the helium balloon and stood out on the deck on their back porch and released the balloons. And we just looked up and up and up till they were completely gone out of sight. And she was using that to illustrate that their little brother, that the spirit carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom safe in the arms of Jesus. But I found myself when those balloons were released, thinking about that, and, and doing just like this passage says. I, I, I couldn't stop looking, just, you know, till they were completely out of sight. And, and that's, what, that's what happens here. They, they just, they keep looking and looking. Well, how could they not? That was Jesus. And this is when he ascended into heaven. These two men that stood by in white apparel, that would, be, that would be terminology that would be descriptive of angels. That's not meaning a couple of guys just happen to have some white clothes on. But, but this is suggestive of, of those messengers, those angelic beings that God sent here to the apostles. And the, they're saying, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? And here's the promise. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him going into heaven. So he came. He did his work. He ascended back into heaven. But then the message from God is he is coming again. He will so come in like manner. And just as they saw him leave earth and go into heaven, when he returns, Every eye shall see him. He will so come in like manner. You know there's an interesting passage about the Lord's coming over in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. It's really a passage that um, is often used, well really at, at funerals when someone passes away. People will say, you know it's appointed to man wants to die. Have you ever heard that passage used at a funeral? The Bible, as the Bible says, it's appointed unto man once to die. We all have that appointment that we must meet, and that's true. But the kind of students that you brethren here at Cortez and other places visiting, the kind of student you want to be is you want to have trained eyes, and you want to see that, that though that is said, that's not his point. He didn't have to tell them that. They already knew that. What he's doing is he's using that as an illustration for something else. That's the point he wanted to make. So he says, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so, see here's the point, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Now see, that's his first coming. That's what he did with his first coming. So he was offered once. He died once. And then he says, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. What does all that mean? Apart from sin. Well, the first time he came was not apart from sin. Though he was sinless, 
The first time he came was for sin. He was our offering for sin. The first time he came was to make expiation for sin. Propitiation, we've talked about that. First time was for sin. He says the second time he's coming, he's not coming for sin. He died once. And the efficacy of the death of Christ means once for all. Never in need of repetition, of perpetual validation. And so when he comes again, he will appear a second time. He came a first time to die, but he died once. He will come a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Notice he says, to those who eagerly wait for him. Now, everybody's going to be there when the Lord returns. And all will be raised. But here he's talking about those that will be glad about it. Here he's talking about those who are eager for it. Here are those that it's good news when Jesus comes. So that's really the point of that passage. Not just to tell people it's appointed a man wants to die. We, we understand that if, we, if we're observing at all. But he said just as that happens to all, Christ died once. And what, what, what man will wait is the judgment. Christ is going to come again. Not for sin, but for salvation. So let's, let's say some things about this, what is called here, his coming a second time. He's already come the first time. Now we're talking about the second time. Well, what about, let's, let's raise this question. When's he going to come? What about the time of his coming? There's a passage over in... Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let's turn to that one. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. Now verse 2. And he's talking here about the, the context is the coming of the Lord. Preceding verses talk about that. In fact, let me just tell you this. I know I'm interrupting myself. 1 Thessalonians has five chapters. Each of the chapters mention the second coming of Christ. It's in all five chapters. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, as he talks about that, he says in verse 2, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that Paul is trying to be funny here. That he's saying something so that people would laugh. But I want you to stop and think about what he is saying. He says, here is something you know and you know perfectly about the day of the Lord, when it will be. And he's saying, the thing that you know perfectly about the day of the Lord is, you don't know when it's coming. Isn't that what he's saying? He says, you know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. That expression, as a thief in the night, is uh, making use of a simile. It's not saying Jesus is a thief, but the phraseology, as a thief, is making one point of comparison, and that is something that is unexpected, something that is unannounced. A thief doesn't uh, uh, get your telephone and send you a text message and say, you know, about uh, a, a quarter of eight while you're attending the gospel meeting, I'm going to break into your house, and I'm going to take your jewelry. If you've got guns, I'm going to take your guns. I'm going to take anything that's worth file. Be there Thursday night at uh, uh, 7.45. That's not the way it happens. You, you might come into a trip, and uh, from a trip, 
you, you see the, the, the door maybe is jarred a little bit, it, it's open a little bit, you, you know you didn't leave it that way, and so, and, and so you look around or you call the police, and uh, they come and, and you ease open, and sure enough, someone's been in there, and they've taken some things, but you had no idea that was coming. Now, again, that's the only point of comparison. He's not comparing the Lord to a thief, except from the standpoint of something that's unknown about the time, something that's unexpected, something that is sudden. Uh, just, just like today, when we got up here, and uh, you know, you look out, it's kind of gray, uh, then some sunshine, wind's blowing, a little cooler than is usually the case. Uh, it's, just, it's just a day. And it'll be a day like that, that there's nothing to indicate that this is the day. It, it's, it will, so, so what he ends up saying is, you know perfectly that you don't know. You know perfectly that the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And that's all we need to know. Because that, what that means is we need to be ready for whenever he comes because nobody knows the day or the hour. A lot of people have predicted dates. The Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted dates. Um, William Miller has predicted dates. A lot of people predict dates. People have, have done that for years. They've all been proven wrong. And so it, it, the, the time of his coming is such that it will be sudden, it will be unannounced, nobody knows, and the point of that is, that means we've got to be ready all the time. So, when he comes, when he comes, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 13. We learn about some things that are going to happen when the Lord, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, chapter 4 and verse 13. We, we learn about some things that are going to happen when the Lord returns. And this is another passage that I was talking to Will about today. And in this passage, there's especially concern for Christians who had died. And if, if somehow we can put ourselves in the other fellow's place, it's really helpful. And the Thessalonians, if you, if you turn to the book of Acts and you read Acts 17, Luke who never exaggerates, says that there was a great multitude that turned to the Lord at Thessalonica. Okay? So you got a big church, and they're all babes in Christ. And to, make, to complicate things, Paul had to leave sooner than he wanted to. And he was very concerned. And he expresses that concern as he wrote from Corinth the letters of 1 Thessalonians and shortly thereafter 2 Thessalonians. But unless Galatians was written before this, these are the earliest letters that Paul wrote. The New Testament uh, was in the process of being revealed. It was by, nowhere need, uh, by no means near completed. And people didn't have the advantage of, of, of years of teaching and Bible study. They're, they're new converts to start with, and the scriptures are just being revealed. And so they're panicking because here somebody dies in the Lord and has he lost out. So Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And if you just ignore the chapter division there, then you'll see that point that he hastens to add, but we don't know when that's going to be. That's where the thief in the night part comes. So, though the Bible deals with, in other passages, the condition of the lost, what this verse is talking about is those that die in the Lord. Those who, verse 14 says, sleep in Jesus. The only way you can die in the Lord is if you live in the Lord. It's the one that has entered into Christ and lives in Christ. When he dies, he dies in the Lord. Which is why Revelation 14 verse 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Yea, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. That's what this is talking about. Not just people that died, but people that died in the Lord. And so Paul is saying, you don't have to worry about them. And really, he ends up saying, there will be Christians living when the Lord returns. But here's the deal. Before God does anything with them, the dead in Christ will rise first. They get priority. He tends to them first, and then it's not like a whole long, a lot of time passes, but he tends to them first before he does anything with the living. Then we which are alive, Christians. So it's Christians that are alive, that will go to be with the Lord, and those that have died. But I'm talking about some things that will happen when the Lord returns. Notice in verse 16, there's a shout. There's the voice of the archangel. There's the trumpet of God. And nobody will be wondering what's going on. Nobody will wonder, I, I wonder, could this be the day? Here is the trumpet, a trumpet that everybody will hear. Here is the voice. The Lord himself will descend with a voice, with a shout, with a voice of the archangel. Nothing subtle about it. The archangel shouting, the trumpet blaring, and all those graves opening up everywhere. I sometimes make reference, as I stand beside the open grave, and as we conclude funeral services, I've often made the point to the family and others standing by supporting the family that everything we're doing here today is going to be undone. Every grave, John 5, 28 and 29, the hour is coming when all that are in the graves will hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life and they that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So he's, he's coming as he went away. He will come again in like manner. All will see him. All will hear that shout. All will hear that trumpet. And by the way, when he comes again, the wording of Matthew 25 at, uh, at verse 31 beginning is that when he comes again in glory, it says, and all his holy angels with him. Think about that. So often reference is made to the heavenly host. In the Old Testament, there's an expression that you, that you find a lot 
And sometimes people misread it. They'll they, they read it like it says, Lord, uh, Sabbath. Uh, but you look closely and it's saying, Lord, Sabaoth. Yahweh Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts. The heavenly host. So when he comes again, he comes in glory and all the holy angels with him. And what will take place, as we just noted from John 5, is that all the dead will be raised. Now, that's the first thing that happens. All the dead are raised. I, I, I pause to look at 1 Thessalonians 4 that has the special notations about those who died in Christ just to get, get into that part about the shout and, and, and the trumpet and how it will be visible, it will be audible, and, but all will be raised. Here's the wording in Acts 17, verse 30. Paul was standing at the Areopagus at Mars Hill in Athens. And he says, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. It was for this reason, he says, God commands all men everywhere to repent because He's appointed a day in which the Lord will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Unfortunately for the Athenians, that's when they stopped listening. In the next verse it says, when, when he mentioned the resurrection of the dead, they, they mocked. And so they wouldn't listen anymore. But what he said is true. There won't be any mockers on that day. All will be raised. And this is why. There's going to be the the day all will be raised, all will be judged. There will be a resurrection, both of the just and of the unjust. Paul said that before Felix in Acts chapter 24. And so all will be raised. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says that the time will come that we must all be made manifest. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. Everybody will stand before him to be judged. All the nations shall be gathered before him. That's the expression of Matthew 25, verse 32. But I'm turning to Revelation 20. I know we referenced that earlier in in terms of the concept of judgment by the books, the standard, is, is what God has said. In Revelation 20, notice with me that John writes, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. You see, when the Lord returns, this earth, the earth and the heavens. Now that doesn't mean the heaven where God is, but the, uh, the universe, earth and the heavens will be burned up. It fled away. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in them, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 
This passage says so much. All the dead. All the dead. Small and great. There may be someone now that uh, goes about in a, in a very expensive car. Maybe it has bulletproof windows. Surrounded by bodyguards worth millions, billions of dollars. And then since we've been here in Cortez, we've seen a lot of people with a sign up in their hands begging for food. And all will be there. Those people holding up the signs. The ones in the car seeing them hold up the signs. The ones that are so unapproachable because of their importance in this world. The small and the great. It, it's, sometimes people say, well, death is the great equalizer. Well, that's true. But also when we think of standing before God on the day of judgment with the books open, the small and the great, everybody. And no matter what had happened to the body, God doesn't make any mistakes. Some may have been buried at sea. The sea gave up the dead that were in them. Death and Hades. Hades is that Greek word that means the, the unseen. We don't see where the spirit goes at the point of death. But Hades refers to the place that the spirit departs at the point of death. But they gave up the spirits that are there, you see. So all are raised, all are there, and all are judged. That's what will take place at the Lord's coming. It's at this time that we receive the glorified body. There, there's misunderstanding about that. I'd like to look with you at a couple of passages, if I may. And in the book of Colossians, for example, Colossians chapter 4, Verse, uh, I meant to say Colossians chapter 3, and it's verse 4 I want to look at. The text says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When? When Christ appears. That's when we appear in glory. I hear a lot of people refer to what happens at death. Would you be turning while we're talking, while we're studying, would you be turning to 2 Corinthians 5? I hear a lot of people that uh, will, will say things, uh, and I, I know people mean well, and I'm not trying to be critical, but I've, I've heard ministers who will give, give comfort, try to give comfort to people present, and say, well, we know this person, in this life his body was crippled or, or uh, had various afflictions, but now he has that new body. Now he has that glorious body. Well, what we have at the point of death is not the glorious body. Now Paul said for me to depart is to be with Christ, which is far better in Philippians 1. But 2 Corinthians 5 refers to what we have actually at the point of death. And what we have at the point of death is a spirit that leaves the body and the spirit is unclothed. That's what happens. And so he's looking ahead to the time we have that building from God, a house not made with God, eternal in the heavens. In this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been found clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. We're not simply wanting to die. We're not simply wanting the Spirit to leave the body and that be that. But he says, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
What happens at death is the spirit leaves the body. But it is an unclothed spirit waiting to be clothed. And when you, when you read on that we're always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. He said we're confident, yes, well pleased to be absent from the body and to be present from the Lord. But now when is it that we're going to receive this body he's talking about? We make it a reign whether present or absent to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So at death there's the disembodied spirit. Now, I don't mean by that it's shivering and it's cold. No, it, it's with, with the Lord. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And all the needs are taken care of, but that's not eternal glorification yet. That's the unclothed longing to be clothed upon still. But it's at the judgment seat of Christ. Look with me to another passage. Over in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3. Two verses there. And it just, it just makes it very plain, and uh, we want to know what the Bible says about that. In Philippians 3, the Bible says at verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's our second coming we're talking about. Who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now this is the same passage where Paul had said in Philippians the first chapter that for me to depart is to be with Christ, verse 23. And so that spirit in that place of paradise, Abraham's bosom, he is with Christ, but that's the spirit. Philippians 3 says, we're eagerly waiting for the Savior. So when he comes, when what we're waiting for comes, that's the time in verse 21 that we receive that glorious body. And I'm not trying to do an overkill on that. I'm just trying to help us to think clearly and to think biblically. Because it's not until the second coming that we enter into that eternal state of glory. And so what happens at that time is, we enter into eternal life and those that know not God and obey not the gospel according to 2 Thessalonians 1 beginning at verse 7 they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. But that takes place Paul says at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's at this time 1 Corinthians 15 tells us verse 23 through 28 that Christ will deliver up the kingdom to the Father. Now, it's my experience that typically we're, all, we're around people all the time that don't think about these things that we're talking about tonight. I will assure you that every word we've read is true. That every promise that God has made is true. We will find it to be exactly as He has said. And what happens is there's really power. There's power that we can access with that kind of, of thinking. In other words, when this, is when this is really real to us, when we're visualizing this, when we get up and we're thinking, I wonder if this will be the day. 
when it's like we've got an ear that, have, have you ever seen a, a, a dog when it cocks his ear at a sound? And so it, it's as if an ear is cocked waiting for that trumpet. It's, it's real. If it's not today, it'll be a day like this. We don't know when. But the Lord is coming. And there's only one thing that's going to matter when he comes. Is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? And if that's the only thing that matters when he comes, then that's the only thing that matters when I live now, you see. So there's power in this kind of godly thinking where this is on our mind. And see, this is the point Peter's making in 2 Peter chapter 3. In verse 10, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, the earth and the works that are therein will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, look here, verse 11, What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of the day that the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. When he says we look for new heavens and earth, he doesn't mean like this one, but he's talking about that new order of things. The Bible says great is your reward in heaven, but using the language of the prophets, he calls it a new heavens and a new earth. But he's simply asking the question, since this is true, what manner of persons ought you to be in all uh, in, in holy conduct and godliness. So you see, God wants this to impact us so that we, where it's real to us, we're concerned about it, we're, we're wanting to be ready, and he doesn't want us to cringe and, and wring our hands and, and, and dread it. D- do you notice he says, looking for and hastening the day of the Lord Jesus. We've already read about those who eagerly wait in Hebrews 9. And verse 28, a while ago. As unworthy as we are, we can anticipate this with boldness and confidence. That because we have put our trust in him and our faith in him, that he will own us and he will crown us and he will receive us. And not not anything to be boastful about or arrogant about, but to just humbly be thankful for that. And just make that our singular goal. Satan is a great distractor. And if we're not careful, even as Christians, it'll be, yeah, yeah, I know that day's coming, but it's way back there on the back burner. We want these things to be on the front burner, in the forefront of our mind, as realities that shape decisions we make from day to day, and how we live, and how we want to reach out to other people. I was thinking today in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7, about the seeds that happened to Samaria in the days of Israel uh, in the divided kingdom. And God caused the Syrians to flee and they left all of their stuff there. And there were four lepers that had actually gone out to the Syrians because they were starving to death. They thought, well, maybe they'll help us. And they found one tent after another with food and gold and clothing and all the Syrians were gone. First thing they did was just start eating and getting all this stuff and hiding it. They, they entered into another tent and did the same thing. And about the third time they go into a tent, there's four of them, and they say, what we're doing is not right. We found all this treasure. And the people inside the city gate 
inside the city of Samaria that are starving. We've got to tell them about the good news. And if we can apply that spiritually, we found the truth. But we've got something that others are going to die without. And what we're doing is not right if we're not sharing the truth that we have with others. Well, you've listened so well. Thank you for being here and for uh, participating in our worship. And we want to extend the Lord's invitation because there may be someone that's not obeyed the gospel. And we want to help you with that if that's the case. Would you let us help you? And there may be someone that you know you're not right with God. Don't leave here without making things right with him as together we stand and sing.